because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And now for our final Skullduggery podcast before the election, we are joined by our Yahoo colleagues, Andrew Romano and John Ward. Andrew and John, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thank you. Thank you. So, guys, uh, let's start out with you, Andrew. Uh, you're our uh, poll maven. What do the uh, final numbers for Yahoo News YouGov look like? Yeah, so we uh, just got our last poll in late Sunday night. Last night, uh, wrote it up this morning. It shows Biden with a 10-point lead among likely voters, 53% to Trump's 43%. There's a lot of other stuff in the poll, but that's the number that everyone's going to care about on the eve of the election. Um, and just to put it in perspective, we showed Biden with a slightly larger lead in the previous two polls last week and the week before, one at 11 points, one at 12 points, but 10 points, double digits, larger than Biden was leading in September and earlier in October. When was the last uh, time, Andrew, that you know someone went into a presidential- I was going well, to get, I mean, in terms of the last time someone went into an election with that kind of polling lead, you have to go back a few decades. In terms of the results, if it were to hold through the election, it would be the, I believe, largest victory, uh, largest margin of victory since Reagan in 1980, and potentially the largest loss for an incumbent since Herbert Hoover in 1932. Now, the usual caveats apply here. We don't know if the polling is going to be right. But just to put it in perspective, Hillary Clinton was leading by 3.2 percentage points in the national polling average in the final day before the election in 2016. She won nationally by about two points overall. Biden's lead is three times as large. And of course, I know there's a lot of other stuff in that poll that we might want to talk about, but it bears mentioning that at this point, you know, as interesting as national polls are, it's really the state polls that matter. And, you know, the national polls have been remarkably stable. State polls have fluctuated a little bit. There's been a little bit of tightening and then a little bit of widening. So this is for both of you guys, because I know you're both following this. What are you seeing in the key battleground states in terms of where the polls are right now? Who is leading? Yeah. Who's got momentum? I would I actually think the state polls have been relatively stable. And there's, there's one exception that I want to note to that. But you're seeing Biden with a lead or a tie across a pretty wide battleground of states, including a lot of states that Trump needs to win to stay president. Florida has got Biden up 2% on average. North Carolina, 2% on average. Georgia, 2% on average. Arizona, 3% Biden on average. And then those upper Midwest battleground states that gave Trump the presidency narrowly in, in 2016, Biden has larger leads, 10 points on average in Wisconsin, eight points on average in Michigan, and this is the, the exception I want to talk about for a second, Pennsylvania, it's a little bit closer. That's about six points for Biden on average. And we have seen some polls in the last few days that in their previous iteration showed Biden maybe with a 10 or 11 point lead. 
coming a little closer down to 7.6 points. Still, the one thing I want to note is you want to look at the range of misses that we've seen in previous elections, 2016 famously, but also 2012. If the polls are as wrong as they were in 2016 across these battleground states, and they, they're exactly where they are right now, Biden would win by 300, with 350 electoral votes. So that's one thing to note, that Trump needs a much larger polling miss in his favor than in 2016 in order to catch up. Conversely, in 2012, the polls underestimated Barack Obama's support, and that could happen here too with Biden. There's no guarantee that the polling miss is going to go Trump's way, and Biden would win an even larger electoral victory potentially if it missed in that direction. So there's a range of possibilities there. So, Andrew, uh, one outlier that threw a lot of people off over the weekend was that Des Moines Register poll, yeah. which has Trump up seven in Iowa, which is way more than all other polling has shown, and that's considered a pretty reliable poll. How do you account for that, and what does it tell us about you know the fluctuation in these polls? Yeah, one of the reasons Democrats especially got PTSD about that poll, which is conducted by Ann Seltzer, is one of the best in the business, polls the, the caucuses there, and everyone really respects her work, is that the final uh, Ann Seltzer poll before the 2016 election also showed Trump up by roughly that much. And it was a sign that he was picking up steam in the Midwest and upper Midwest and a kind of foreshadowing of what was to come. But in 2016, there were a lot of other polls showing sort of similar things. This one is much more of an outlier. That's not to say that, that Trump couldn't win Iowa. In fact, the polling average shows him ahead by one percentage point. But it's close there. And I just urge listeners not to think too hard about any one poll. Look at the averages. Look at the directions. Ward, I, I want to bring you into this and get your sense more generally of the polling. But I want to ask a specific question because we are in that stage of the ele- of the election just days before the final vote on November 3rd when, you know, there's sort of the people looking at there's the data that people look at. And then there's kind of perceptions and optics. And what I mean by that is, you know, the polls say one thing, but then you're seeing Trump barnstorming these battleground states, huge rallies, his supporters all over the roads with their flags, tying up traffic on the White Zone Bridge here in, in New York, and a sense that there's a kind of voter intensity on Trump's side that Biden may not have. And at the end of the day, when we're at the, you know, we're beyond the kind of persuasion part of the campaign and and into the mobilization and turnout part of the campaign, it's easy, I think, for people to sort of, you know, kind of wonder whether momentum is shifting. So help us sort through the data versus the optics. Or you could put it this way, sift through the data versus the roiling mess of nerves in our stomach. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, I did look at the pictures of the caravans, the Trump caravans yesterday, and uh, and I've been in it. And it kind of as I thought about that and the massive rallies, it did bring to mind sort of how I think we kind of overlooked and discounted too much the obvious enthusiasm for Trump in 2016. I'm not drawing an exact parallel. I'm just saying that four years ago, I think a lot of people discounted what that represented. I think you have to take into account the data, though, when you think about these anecdotal pictures. And the fact is, Trump's polling has not gotten above 45% in the national averages. I did see that his 
is about 47% in the swing states. And so, you know, I think that's one thing. On the other hand, I think Peggy Noonan put it pretty well. She said, you know, the rallies that Biden didn't have were people standing in line to vote early or voting by mail. I thought that was an interesting way to think about it. And I don't think we'll ever have another election like this one where you have a lot of intensity. If it turns out that Biden wins, it will have turned out that we saw a ton of intensity that was under the radar and not obviously visible like these rallies because it was people going and voting in person early or sending in their mail ballots. So that, that's intensity, that's enthusiasm about booting Trump out versus intensity and enthusiasm to, you know, for, to support Trump. And I guess one question that occurs to me is, to, for either of you, does the kind of more positive enthusiasm, i.e. for a candidate, Trump, uh, as it were, the more negative kind of enthusiasm, or is it? A, does it not matter? Is that a distinction without a difference? Andrew? I'm going to just jump in and be the data geek for a second. So we asked about some of this stuff in our poll, and we did find that there was slightly more extreme enthusiasm on the Trump side. So 63% of Trump supporters said they were extremely enthusiastic about voting for the president versus 56% of Biden supporters. That's about a 7% gap. When you include people who say they are very enthusiastic, the gap narrows. It's about 80% for Trump to 76% for Biden voters. Those are both really high numbers. I don't think that the fact that Trump voters are more excited about voting for Trump than Biden voters are on the margins voting for Biden really makes a difference. I think both sides are incredibly passionate they see the stakes as existential, even apocalyptic. We ask the question, if your candidate loses, what does that mean for the, the country? And 45% on both sides, exactly the same number, and this was more than any other option, said the country will never recover. That I can't imagine was the feeling in any other election. And I think it just underlines how passionate both sides are about weighing Okay, in. I got a pop quiz for you guys. I'm going to read you a quote. Let me know if you guys have any idea who said it. Quote, never argue with the Gallup poll. It has never been wrong, and I very much doubt that it ever will be. Mark, Mark was that? <laughs> Tom, Is that Dewey? Tom Dewey, yes. Yeah. Uh, I saw that in a piece by Niall Ferguson today, which actually runs in Yahoo Finance, just um, bringing up the 1948 case. We've talked so much about 1932, but, you know, let's not One thing forget. I'll say about Dewey defeats Truman is that there was only one poll <laughs> back then. And yeah. I think we have slightly more than one poll. Yeah. But, you know, the analogy that Ferguson draws is everybody assumed Dewey was going to win. He was the establishment candidate. You know, they, his, his campaign team was, you know, measuring the drapes in the White House uh, right up to the last day. While Truman was out there on his whistle stop tours, drawn big crowds, pounding away at the Republicans in pretty inflammatory ways. And it worked. Now, there are a lot of differences, of course, but, you know, it is something that I you know, think should be kept in mind. If Donald Trump wins this election, we should just take all of the pollsters out 
to West Virginia and just give them a different job. Shoot them. I was going to say that. Frank Luntz has said he will retire if Trump wins, that it means his entire profession is fundamentally. I mean, uh, it will be a a polling miss of historic proportions if if Trump wins, but it's still a a roughly one in 10% chance. And I think that has less to do with sort of holistic polling errors everywhere. And more, as I mentioned before, I want to just circle back to Pennsylvania. And I I know John's been doing a lot of reporting about this. Pennsylvania is closer in those polling averages than Michigan and Wisconsin. It's about six points. And if there were an error like 2016, it might be down to less than one point. And that is six points too. That's where I don't, Nevada six points too. Right, right. I mean, but Pennsylvania, I think it, it is especially interesting because it's kind of the tipping point state in a lot of these scenarios. The one that Biden needs to win or else it becomes very difficult for him to get to 270. And this is where Trump's chances, I think, sort of come into play. It's, it's if the polls are wrong, it's very close. And then we get into a lot of these questions about counting all the ballots, which obviously Trump has made a major issue in the, in the closing days of the campaign. So I so want to get into let's all talk of that. About before, that. Yeah, well, actually, actually, before we do that, because I do want to get in, John has done a ton of really good reporting on that, and it's really important. But let's just zoom out for a second and imagine, you know, you are someone who's obviously interested in the outcome of this election, because I think we all are, but haven't been, you know, kind of geeking out on the data like we've been and haven't been following it as closely, I just want from both of you what you will be watching tomorrow night and into Wednesday morning, the, the sort of key clues that you're going to be looking at to tell you where this thing is headed. Let's start with you, Romano, and then John. Sure. So I'm kind of looking at it as two rounds on election night. There's a first round in what would be this seven o'clock to eight o'clock Eastern time hours. That's when four states uh, that Trump won in 2016 and really needs to win again uh, when the polls close there. Florida, North Carolina, uh, Georgia, and Ohio. All of those states are very, very close in the polling. Some show Biden a little bit ahead. Some show Trump a little bit ahead. But beyond just closing early in the polls there, those states are states where they've already started processing and even counting some of these this massive amount of early votes that have been coming in. And so it's possible that we could get a clearer picture of who is ahead, what the standings are in those states fairly soon, fairly early on election night. And can we means, can can we drill yeah. down even a little bit deeper? Is there sure. are there because in some of these states you will get key counties and even, you know, the results of or, or where things are going in down ballot congressional races that might tell you something interesting. Is there anything, you know, like I've heard people say that in Florida, you know, they'll be looking to see what kind of results are coming in from, I don't know, the villages or Pinellas County or, you know, anything else like that for just for the. Yeah. I mean, I think in Florida, you're going to want to watch Miami-Dade. This is a a county where you're going to see some of the Cuban-American vote come in and you see the generational split in that and how well Trump is doing there. Pinellas County is another big swing swing county in Florida. It's kind of a microcosm of the state. It's one that Trump won by one percentage point in 2016. So it was extremely close. If you see Biden jumping out to a lead there, uh, that could be a possible harbinger. Osceola County in Florida. I mean, there's a number of swing counties. You're gonna wanna look at the sort of suburban districts in North Carolina around the big cities. 
I mean, I just to make the larger point, which I think is important, is that these, again, these are states that Trump needs to win. If Biden hops out to a large enough lead that it looks like he's going to win any one of those states, it could make it fairly clear on election night which direction the election is heading. Alternatively, if the results there start to look like they diverge a lot from the polling that we've seen, it could suggest that the polling might be off more broadly. And but and, Andrew, if I could, if I could, night. if I could break in here, because yeah. I fully agree that you know we could know a lot very early based on those numbers in Florida and North Carolina when we get a big dump of the mail-in and early voting numbers. But the question, I guess, is, will we know how many votes are still outstanding when at 7.30 and 8 o'clock, you know, we get this huge dump of numbers, which may show Biden up substantially because Democrats tended to dominate the early voting. But will we be able to know in real time? Yes, but there are still X number to be counted. Yeah, I mean, we'll have a sense. We won't know exactly what those numbers are, but we'll have a sense that there are large numbers. People came out and voted on election day. Those votes haven't been tabulated yet. And it's going to kind of unfold just like, I hesitate to say, just like every other election, but it's similar. You, you're getting those, those early counts. You're watching the returns come in from key districts, key counties. And there are expert analysts and election teams at all the networks and AP that are going to have a sense of what's outstanding and what's in and how those things balance out. They're not going to call any of these states before they're they're certain that one candidate or the other. I mean, I, I suspect that if we get a big early dump and it shows a prohibitive lead for Biden, none of the networks or news organizations are going to call it but it'll be pretty clear yeah, uh, and what I think the outcome thing, is going to be. Right? Yeah, and I think the one thing, one thing to watch, we've been, you know, all election geeks have been sort of obsessing over the, the early vote numbers by party registration in Florida, which show, I think the final numbers today show Democrats with about a 100,000 point advantage in terms of who's voted according to the registration, Democrats, Republicans, no party affiliation or independence. And so a lot of people are trying to divine what that all means, uh, I think one, one thing to watch on election night is if we start to get a sense of how those no party affiliated or independent voters are voting. If they're breaking hard for Biden, I think it's going to be hard for Trump to come up with enough election day votes in a state like Florida to catch up. But conversely, if it's very close, then it's anyone's ballgame. So, John, I was going to ask, because Trump is uh, you know, making noises about how he's might declare victory on election night. What <laughs> what are the scenarios that could vastly complicate what the numbers are telling us? You know, I was thinking about this this morning. It's a really troubling sort of statement for a number of reasons. And the statement that I want to just make is that there's no plausible scenario in which Democrats steal the election, but there is a plausible scenario, which has been signaled by the president, where there are Republican Party attempts to steal the election. That's an incredibly difficult thing for me to say. I hate that I'm saying it. Um, I hate that there's a lot of Americans out there who are going to hear a statement like that and think it's a partisan statement. You know, people, many of whom people I know, you know, in my family and my, my relational network, people who think that, you know, the media is so biased against Trump. But the fact is, expert after expert on voting, Republicans, as much as Democrats, if not more so, 
are adamant that there's no way to cheat your way to winning a, a national election, not even a statewide election. Voter fraud happens. It's usually at the local level. It usually has a pretty small effect on anything outside of a local election. On the other hand, you have this scenario in which the president, because of the president has been you know, undermining or attempting to undermine faith in voting in a variety of ways. At the same time, the Republican Party has been putting up almost unprecedented obstacles to voting in states across the country in various different ways. But if it comes down to Pennsylvania, there's a scenario in which the Republicans have already signaled that they want to try to stop mail ballots from being counted after Election Day. Even as the Republican Party has made sure that it's impossible to count mail ballots, most mail ballots in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin until after Election Day. So it's a really, really disturbing storyline. People like Rick Hassan, who's a, one of the foremost experts on election laws, uh, he's a professor at uh, UC Irvine and has written two books on voting, which are both very good. He, you know, people like him and I think Ben Ginsburg as well are skeptical that anything like that can work. But what we don't know is what the sort of, uh, you know, impact is among regular people, Trump supporters, if he's out there yelling about a stolen election with no evidence of one. He's going to be claiming that there's a stolen election because of fraud as a justification, potentially, to try to stop legitimate ballots from being counted. But it's still yeah. got to be close. The numbers have to be close enough for that to be remotely credible, right? That's right. But I think that goes back to Andrew's scenario. I think about it more in terms of like three rounds with rounds one and two kind of mushed together. But, you know, you look right away at Florida, right? And if Biden's lead from the mail votes that come in pretty quickly is so big that it doesn't look like in-person voting can make up for it, then, you know, if we have a sense that Florida might go Biden. I'm skeptical of that based on the polling and based on what Florida always is, but it's possible. And then you start looking at those states Andrew mentioned, in addition to Arizona, North Carolina, Georgia, Ohio, Arizona. You may have mentioned one more, but those are the four I'm looking at. If Biden gets any three of those, he doesn't need the Rust Belt. He could literally lose Pennsylvania. He needs Michigan and Wisconsin, but he could lose Pennsylvania if he gets any three of North Carolina, Arizona, Ohio, or Georgia. Um, of those states, and let's throw in Texas as well, these are states that, for the most part, Democrats have not been able to win You know, in, in recent elections. Obama did win in North Carolina, and um, can't remember. Did, he never he never ran one Arizona, did he? No. I don't believe so. And he lost North Carolina in 2012. He did win Ohio, but in particular Texas and Georgia, because those are the ones that haven't been in the Democratic column for you know decades. Which of those two do the two of you think would be more likely for Biden to flip? That was Georgia, two. Georgia and Texas. Yeah, uh, Georgia, Georgia and Texas. Georgia, Georgia right? Georgia expert. And right now, is it looking like Georgia will flip? Well, I'll let Andrew speak to the polling, but I mean, it looks close. I mean, the polling's close. Let me flip over to the the Times average. Yeah, I think um, it's a two-point Biden edge in the polling, yeah. right? And, yeah. the, and, and Texas is just as close. I mean, it's basically tied. The fact that we're even talking about that, I mean, sometimes I sort of pause when uh, I'm thinking about all the uncertainty and how Trump could still win and say, what if all these numbers were reversed? we'd be saying it's going to be a Trump 
landslide. I mean, Biden is ahead or tied in enough states to give him nearly 400 electoral votes. So again, it all comes back to whether we're seeing just the polling be wildly off. A possibility, but it's pretty remarkable uh, that you're seeing a Democrat this competitive in Texas. So you don't see you don't see Trump running the table in all of those states and taking Pennsylvania, let's say, unless the polling is wildly you know, off. And wildly let me just say, off. in that in that scenario, and maybe a, a listener will correct me if I'm, I'm wrong, but I think that Biden could lose all four of those states. Could lose North Carolina, Ohio. Florida and Georgia, could lose Texas, could lose Pennsylvania. And if he wins Arizona, adds Arizona, and retain and wins and flips Michigan and Wisconsin, which the polls show him well ahead in, and wins two con- congressional districts in Maine and Nebraska, gets right. to 270. So That's all right. he has to do is he can lose Pennsylvania if he flips Arizona and wins those two congressional districts where the polls show him ahead, he's at 270. That just goes to show how many paths Biden has. Last question for John, something that's on everybody's minds, potential for violence election night and election day. That's the question, the potential for violence. Okay. Well, I mean, yes, there's potential. I think um, there was somebody who wrote a piece about how people who talk about civil war are basically blowing hot air. I have had conversations with people myself, you know, uh, in my relational network who intimate stuff like that, or maybe even mention it openly. And, um, you know, I I think a lot of that is kind of overblown, but, you know, if you have a a scenario where the votes are being counted and it's a contested election, it's close. It comes down to Pennsylvania. If the president is, um, out there yelling about a, uh, rigged election, there's certainly potential for things to happen in the streets that are really, really, I mean, I, I'm just thinking of all these boarded up uh, shops and stores I'm, I'm seeing photos of and actually seeing to the extent that I drive around uh, yeah. in Washington. Um, it does make you wonder. Trump supporters are, I think I've been saying for a while that if Trump wins, you know, the left will be in the streets rioting. And I think they're basing that on, you know, what you saw over the summer with protests and sometimes riots about police brutality. And so I think there may be some rioting if Trump wins from the left. But I think the the other thing I would predict is that you're going to start hearing people talk about secession. Yeah, California. I'm in California and I can tell you. Yeah, I mean, among among the kind of left wing intelligentsia, that is a conversation that is that is going on. Yeah, I mean, just yeah, just to put a button on this from from the data perspective, which seems to be my my geeky role here. I mean, it, both sides are primed to be to distrust the results of the election if it doesn't go their way. We asked what the most important reason would be if Biden loses, if Trump loses, of Biden and Trump supporters. And both sides, 59% and 58%, said if the other side rigged or stole the election. That is where we are right now. And so people are going to be very upset. <laughs> 
just make sure you get your California passport when you next want to come to uh, New York and Washington to visit us. I'll just close with, um, here's a bulletin that was sent out by George Washington University, just blocks from the White House, to all students. Quote, before Election Day, we recommend that you have at least one week of food supplies and medicine in your room. We suggest preparing for the Election Day period as you would a hurricane or a snowstorm that would prevent you from going outside for several days to grab food or order. So that is profoundly depressing. I'm hoping it's, <laughs> yes, I've got to yes, say. Yes, it is. Uh, <laughs> all right. OK, well, on that. But on note, that note. <laughs> uh, but uh, so, uh, Andrew, uh, John, uh, thanks a lot for uh, joining us today and uh, throughout this election. And we'll uh, obviously be sure to be checking in with you after we get results. Uh, before we go, I uh, just want to note that uh, Skullduggery will be uh, covering the election throughout election evening, election night, election early morning, uh, the next day. Stay close to our um, social channels, uh, at Skullduggery Pod on uh, Twitter, and uh, we'll be uh, sending out links for some live coverage uh, of the election, and we hope you all uh, join us and, and tune in. Now for a perspective on where the two campaigns are and what they are thinking and saying, we've got our other Yahoo colleagues, Brittany Shepard with the Biden campaign and Hunter Walker, our White House correspondent. Brittany, you're in Philly right now? Yes, staring right at the City Hall as we speak. Okay, so what are Biden's plans uh, for the last day of the campaign, and um, what are you picking up from them? So he's leaving Ohio now on his way to crisscross the Commonwealth over here in Pennsylvania. I mean, of all uh, some swing states, they, they basically the Biden campaign thinks Pennsylvania is the most critical. I think polling averages have Biden up 49 to Trump 43, of course, we know polling isn't everything, but internally they seem pretty confident, but you know, they're just nervous about Pennsylvania. And then tomorrow he returns to Wilmington where he's set to give us some, some kind of remarks. I'm not saying it'll be concession or acceptance because, you know, as we all know, we likely won't know <laughs> anything tomorrow. I'm sure they're not talking about concession. <laughs> what is he trying to do in, in this last day barnstorming the state in Pennsylvania? I mean, presumably... He's obviously trying to drive up the numbers of kind of core Democratic right. uh, voters. But what has been different about Biden's campaign, you know, compared to Hillary Clinton in 2016 is his ability to appeal to white voters, not just um, college educated white voters, but also non-college educated white voters. He's losing to Trump, but not by as much. So is part of the strategy here to try to drive down Trump support in that crucial block. Yeah, Dan, that's precisely it. I mean, there's there's a bit of a voter peel off from Trump they're really thinking about doing. They've been really big about coalition building. And if you look at the more rural parts of Pennsylvania, yes, Trump is up by it, but by a much more narrow lead than he was with Clinton last time. I think it's less than 15 points. And they really think that they can appeal to uh, working class voters with uh, Biden Scranton roots. They're actually, Biden and Trump are actually neck and neck right up in Scranton where I think Trump is heading either now or in a, in a couple of hours. And they, they think that there is an every man approach that folks here in Pennsylvania can appeal to. 
that they'll maybe ignore some of the Trump campaign's attacks about fracking and, you know, if they're more concerned about health care, about um, employment, that they'll see Biden as a more attractive choice. And, you know, they're, they're flooding the state with money uh, and they're, they're hoping that they can get these white, white people to turn out because here in Philly with a larger black population is pretty locked up. Yeah, Brittany, one uh, last question for you before we get to Hunter. Is there any indicator or concern that the disturbances, riots, looting in Philly last week have had any impact on the electorate? Uh, I mean, it's tough. I mean, they're worried about it, right? I mean, you look all around the country. I was talking to the camp the other day. They do think some kind of violent outbreak is going to happen. I'm talking about what happened last week in Philly. Right. Right, right. With the shooting, you mean, in, in yeah. response to that? I mean, they're not banking on that really changing the results. I mean, even today in early voting, I'm walking around the lines are super long. I don't think folks here are that discouraged. It doesn't seem to be a huge worry of the Biden campaign. I mean, honestly, they probably think that will turn out more people in their favor as opposed to against them because they're like charged up young people, actually young, young black folks who they're really trying to get out because Trump's like, you know, trying to appeal with them. So I think if anything, it might work in his favor, but at this point, I don't know if it'll make a big push one way or the other. What's the view from Trump world? Well, the president is absolutely barnstorming the campaign trail right now. He's got, I believe, five events today in North Carolina, uh, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. They're all projecting a lot of optimism. Uh, they have, despite the polls, for quite some time now. What is the basis for that? Can you explain <laughs> how they think they're in better shape than every poll seems to indicate? Yeah, and I think one thing that's that's worth pointing out is when we say that the president is on the trail in Michigan, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania today, uh, also Wisconsin, those are all states he won in 2016, right? So even as they're projecting confidence, they're clearly playing defense. There's no question about that. You know, they cite wonkier and wonkier statistics. It'll be, you know, advantages in early voting, advantages in registrations. In one of the, I think, more definitive moments of the campaign, Bill Stepien, the Trump campaign manager, and Jason Miller, one of the senior advisors, had a press call where they cited a bunch of online sort of snap polls that are just totally meaningless and unscientific, including the NewJersey.com poll. So, you know, they're citing kind of their own metrics, but what they're also doing that I think is more consequential is you're seeing Miller and other top Trump people raise questions about the vote count and raise questions uh, about the idea that any extension in vote counting beyond election night, which we almost will certainly see uh, with the volume of mail-in ballots due to, the, due to the pandemic, putting forward the idea that that would be illegitimate and that we just need to call it on election night. But that will change in a heartbeat if the numbers on election night show a Biden victory, right? Well, yeah, yes. And you're making a really good point because I think it's funny that they're doing that because as far as I can see, for example, Pennsylvania, so important to Trump's path. For Biden, he can actually win several ways without Pennsylvania. And that's one state where we know they haven't done mail-in before. There's a high volume. There might be a delay. So you're totally right, Mike, that it's kind of funny to see them casting aspersions on the delayed vote count when they might need it. But the bottom line is, you know, we saw reporting from Axios, and I've heard similar things from Trump circles. By all 
indications the president is planning to declare victory tomorrow no matter what happens. So basically, poll numbers are irrelevant. The actual schedule of counting is irrelevant. It's, it's all just coming up red for President Trump. So, Hunter, let's talk a little bit about Trump's closing argument in these last few days, um, which have included firing Fauci, uh, uh, <laughs> cheering on these uh, Trump caravans that have tr- tried to drive a Biden campaign bus off the road. We're talking about how we're rounding the corner on, on COVID and you know who knows what else. Is this the closing argument that Bill Sepian wanted Donald Trump to make? <laughs> I mean— you know, I've I've been reporting on uh, this president and his various campaign teams, and Lord knows he's cycled through a few for, I guess, four or five years now. And everyone will tell you, I mean, Corey Lewandowski famously said, let Trump be Trump, right? I don't think they can ever necessarily get him to stick to the argument that they want. And as you were pointing out, it is kind of frenetic. But that being said, you know, whether it's talking about firing some of his national security leaders, including the director of the FBI, talking about firing Fauci, cheering these supporters of his who have kind of disrupted the polls, the central message I'm getting from the Trump campaign is calling the process into question, calling the government into question and riling up the base. And that is a very combustible close heading into what seems like it will be an election where, you know, we have key swing states and and a slow count. I was just thinking that uh, if Trump is going to declare victory tomorrow night, no matter what, will he also stage his own uh, inauguration on January 20? <laughs> <laughs> Imagine how big the crowds will be. But actually, I, one thing I one thing I am curious about is, you know, if Trump loses, will we get a eventually a concession speech? And will he call Joe Biden to congratulate him? And I guess vice versa. What would Joe Biden do if if he loses? Um, Hunter, what do you think? I mean, concession speech if he loses? Well, you know, I actually keep thinking back to that. You know, we saw in 2016 you know, Hillary Clinton didn't go out night of, but she did come out the next day. She did make that call to Trump. He famously touted it when he was uh, on stage in the ballroom at the Hilton where he declared victory. We also saw Obama at the White House kind of come out and admit the Democrats had been defeated, almost immediately schedule sort of a fairly unifying meeting with Trump. So I think, you know, if Biden loses, that is, you know, uh, past his prologue, and that is probably what we would see coming from him. But you're totally right to hone in on, you know, what would Trump do? I don't think we've ever seen Donald Trump be conciliatory or admit defeat (laughs) or apologize. I mean, I've asked him, you know, to grade some of the worst instances of his administration objectively, the coronavirus pandemic response and the response to Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico. In both cases, he told me he deserved a 10 out of 10. And that's kind of his operating premise there. You know, he is he is the most tremendous and and is always wronged, you know, so I have no idea. And I think that's part of what's so interesting heading into this. The president is a total wild card. And it's like this second completely confusing calculus layered in on top of all the normal electoral yeah. math. So, Brittany, I mean, you know, this is actually a very serious question. I mean, if Biden wins... And he knows that, you know, somewhere approaching half of the country, you know, 40 percent, is going to be devastated by this. 
He has always talked about this is a fight for the soul of the nation and unifying the country. What do you think um, Biden will do in terms of reaching out to Trump voters in this, you know, as Hunter called it, this kind of combustible moment? Well, right. And and as, as Trump is combustible on the complete opposite end, perhaps to his own fault, Biden is um, very predictable, if not boring, to his own uh, base. I mean, repeatedly, Biden has said from the primaries now that he, even though he's a proud Democrat, he's running as president for all Americans. I don't think that message is going to change one bit if he wins next week. I think the only place we can see him getting irate is when Trump says, actually, if you won, you stole the election. And for the last couple of days, Biden's been really pissed off. Can I say pissed off on here? Absolutely. <laughs> he's, been really, he's been angrier than I've ever seen from when we were in Michigan on Saturday all the way up until today. And I don't think he's going down without a fight. And I don't think you're going to see that nice, nice phone call that we expect him to give and settle down. I mean, I think he's going to take a little bit what he heard from other uh, folks running for president. I remember when Yang was running, he would tell in the beginning of his stump, you know what, if you voted for Trump, I get it, actually. Um, and not speak down to them with that deplorable language, even if privately they, they think that's true. And I think Biden's advisors are telling him to not be condescending and to understand why people might be hurting. Uh, because fear is a very effective motivator, and the Trump campaign has used it and Trump to his advantage for so long, even before he was president. And Biden will have to try to meet them where they're at, or else we're just going to keep seeing the same kind of unrest we're seeing, you know, Tappan Zee Bridge being closed down, New Jersey Parkway being closed down, because folks, for whatever their reason, feel like they've been wronged and that the system put in place it will not protect them, whether it's white guilt or whatever, you know, and I think Biden is going to try to meet them where they're at. I just don't know how successful that can always be when everyone's just so pissed off about everything. I think Brittany's making a really important point there, because when we talk about what would a Biden concession look like, you know, I think we would see him revert to those norms if it's actually totally clear that he lost, which I don't think we would see from President Trump. And, you know, look, at this point, the polls are totally favoring Biden. But, you know, Trump could pull off a bank shot. He essentially needs every toss-up state to go his way. And if that legitimately does happen, I do think you'd see the Biden concession. But Democrats are definitely spoiling, in part due to the indications we've seen from the Trump camp, for a legal fight, for drama afterwards. One thing I hear when I talk to a lot of sources is nervousness. Just because after the 2000 election, very notably, after some people wanted them to throw more of a dispute in 2016, there are a lot of progressive Biden supporters and allies who feel concerned that if Trump does, you know, for lack of a better term, make this weird after an apparent Biden victory, he's operating on turf that is much more familiar for him and for Republicans, whereas Biden, we would need to see this personality change that Perhaps, uh, as Brittany was indicating, he's he's ready to he's ready to do here. You know, Hunter, your uh, mention of uh, Florida of 2000 does remind me of uh, in Florida, where it was the Republicans who were looking for late mail in ballots from military overseas to carry them over the top. And, you know, that was one of the legal disputes. The Republicans were saying don't stop counting because we're, there's still military ballots out there. So it's kind of a complete reversal to have Trump saying we got to end the counting 
on election night, which is not going to happen anyway, because the law, the, the state law is pretty clear that in North Carolina, you can count for up to nine days as long as there's a postmark by election day. State law is very clear on this, but you know one thing we're seeing that a lot of um, Democratic sources were flagging for me this morning, uh, the DOJ is sending officials to a lot of key precincts to quote unquote monitor the results. And Democrats who view uh, Attorney General Bill Barr as just a total Trump partisan are expressing a lot of nervousness this morning that these federal officials might actually try to seize ballots and halt the count. Uh, and we've also seen in the Supreme Court recent decisions uh, by Brett Kavanaugh, you know, indicating a legal rationale or support for stopping the count. We should just say that we we don't actually have any evidence that that's what the Justice Department is up to. I know that that is something that Democrats have been fearful of. These are, are going to overwhelmingly be civil servants who will not be political partisans who will be uh, monitoring uh, the poll results. But for uh, just to wrap up here for election night, what are the plans of the respective <laughs> candidates? Where will they be and who will be watching the returns with them? Okay, I'll just jump in. So Biden is going to be in Wilmington at the Chase Center, which is adjacent to the Westin Wilmington. For most of the day, he's actually going to be in his house in the Brandywine kind of ritzy version of Wilmington with his family, especially his grandchildren. He said even on the trail day that they're his lucky charms. He's been traveling with them for the last couple of days. And there might be some staff. Senator Kamala Harris and her husband, Douglas Emhoff, will also be with Dr. Biden and Mr. Biden. But that's it. It is far cry from the Jacob Javits uh, balloon drop that was planned last time around, I guess before the tears, maybe. Um, it's going to be outside, drive in, very cold. Press will be at the back. And if he does come out, we'll stand back there and listen to him speak and he'll go back home. It's it, it just a far cry from anything that we would have imagined or has ever happened. Um, no filing room, nothing, in, in, nothing inside. And so that's it. Dress warmly, Brittany. Brittany. It sounds uh, yeah, like, uh, I'll be bringing hand warmers for okay. sure. Hunter and the president is going to be at the White House, not the Trump Hotel, we understand. Yes, that is. I'm, I'm, I'm actually just checking my phone right now to see what I'm allowed to say, because they're often very cagey about the president's whereabouts. But uh, it does seem that he will be at the White House. And interestingly, NBC has reported that, and I'm planning to go down and take a look at it today, construction has already begun on a larger fence, a quote-unquote non-scalable fence, to secure the White House and parts of the mall complex. And also, reportedly, hundreds of National Guardsmen have been called in. So this is sort of an echo of the protests that we saw in D.C. earlier this summer. And essentially, it seems clear that the president is bunkering down here and preparing for potential drama if people take to the streets following whatever happens. For right after Election Day, or are you, or are you talking about after January 20th, bunkering down in, in the White House? <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, I, I, Dan, you're, you're touching on the million-dollar question here. Uh, we know tomorrow is Election Day. We don't know a lot after that. When will this election actually end? So, Hunter, the campaign, what about the throngs of campaign supporters we are accustomed to seeing election night? Will there be any gathering of those in Trump world? I am sure there will be gatherings of Trump supporters all around the country. The president is going to a rally. Uh, as I said, he's got five today. He's got, I believe, at least one tomorrow. He will be surrounded by the faithful. But of course, when he returns here to Washington, D.C., this is an overwhelmingly Democratic city. I think it's voted 80 percent blue More in recent than that. races. 
more than that. Yeah. So yeah. He, he doesn't have a lot of love on the streets here. And so I think that's part of what you're seeing there. But as Brittany was alluding to, you know, Trump supporters have been demonstrating all around the country. We saw these um, car caravans over the weekend, these attempts to disrupt traffic. So there will be, I think, all sorts of dueling demonstrations in the streets. But we did hear, Hunter, I mean, I think there's been reports that Trump is going to have an election victory party inside inside the White House. Uh, I mean, I think the number that was thrown around was 400 people. I don't know whether they'll be social distancing or wearing masks, um, but have <laughs> I you mean, heard anything if, at all about that? If by if everything we've seen from the White House in the past couple of months says that large gatherings at the White House complex will not necessarily feature any coronavirus protocols. I mean, the president, uh, despite the fact that this is not scientifically true, has declared himself and everyone on his staff who got sick immune after they had their recent outbreak. But yeah, I do believe I'm... I'm I'm just not sure what I'm allowed to report here because some of this guidance is for planning only, but I think it is safe to say we will see the president at the White House on election night where every indication is that he's going to declare himself, you know, ahead or the winner no matter what's happening. I do want to just jump in and say to that, what a tremendous split screen that will be if it does happen, if there's a bunch of people on the South Lawn or within many of the rooms of the White House, and then you um, cut to us in Wilmington in a parking lot where everyone's driven in and maybe, maybe the candidate and the vice president um, um, nominee might come out to the stage. It's just a stunning, stunning side-by-side uh, -side in the age of coronavirus. The only uh, appropriate way to end the 2020 election. <laughs> Brittany's totally right. And Trump has tried to use his cavalier handling of the virus and that split screen against Joe Biden, right? We've seen him throughout the closing parts of this race kind of mock Biden for having these socially distanced small events while he's like, look at my crowds. And I think we're certainly going to see that spectacle tomorrow night. And I think we're also going to see split images between these campaigns events and also between crowds and protests in the streets one way or the other. All right. Well, we will be uh, checking in with the two of you tomorrow night. And um, sounds like one of you, Brittany, will be cold outside <laughs> and the other will be a little warmer inside the White House. Uh, but uh, anyway, thanks, guys. And we'll be back to you. Take it easy. Stay safe. And just a reminder to uh, follow us on At Skullduggery Pod. We will be broadcasting live on election night at various points during the evening. Uh, follow uh, At Skullduggery Pod. Uh, there'll be uh, a, a link. Thanks, everyone.